Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. The first large number of Asian immigrants to migrate to a state or territory under the control of the United States government happened around 1860s. Made up primarily of Chinese immigrants who came to the United States to take up jobs in the Hawaii Territory and the mainland's west coast to work in the gold mines of California and to work construction on the Central Pacific Railroad. Immigration from Japan was minute in comparison to China at the time because Japan remained a closed society. Japan had started actively trading with Europe around the middle of the 16th century, but with the beginning of the 17th century, her emperors had deliberately cut off Japan from the outside world in an effort to eliminate influences from Christian missionaries. The pendulum began to swing back between the years of 1867 and 1912 in an effort to turn Japan into a more modern industrialized nation. This change led to a more open immigration policy that would allow a wider stream of immigrants from Japan to the Hawaii Territory and the mainlands of the United States. One of the largest group of immigrants to hit the gold mines of California was around 1869 as part of the venture known as the Wakamatsu Tea and Silk Farm Colony. The government of Japan had reached an official agreement with the sugar plantation owners in Hawaii to permit immigration of contract laborers, but few Japanese immigrants continued eastward to the mainland. In contrast to the large population of Chinese, the Japanese population of the United States remained tiny. In 1870s, when the Chinese population was numbered into tens of thousands, there were merely 55 Japanese on the mainlands of the United States, of whom 33 lived in the state of California. A decade later, the United States Census counted 148 immigrants in the United States, with 86 living in California. By 1890, however, there were 2,038 Japanese immigrants in the mainland, With 1,114 in the state of California, in the territory of Hawaii there was twice as many. The backlash against the Asian immigrants to the United States gathered momentum by the 1870s, leading to the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which effectively banned Chinese immigration. The act did not mention Japanese immigrants and did not affect the immigration to Hawaii, which would be formally annexed by the United States in 1898. The Japanese population increased quickly after 1894 when a treaty was signed between the governments of the United States and Japan endorsing open immigration. Despite this agreement, however, anti-Asian sentiment continued to simmer in the mainland, and in 1913, California enacted the Alien Land Law, which would prohibit aliens who were ineligible for citizenship to own property. This would include the Isi, Japanese residents who were born in Japan, but not their children, the Nisi, who were born in the United States, so the parents quickly began to transfer the land deeds into the names of their United States-born children. During this time in California, nearly 13,000 acres of farmland were owned by the children of Japanese immigrants. In 1920, a strike by the Japanese sugar plantation workers in Hawaii increased racial tensions that would lead to the exclusionary clause of Japanese immigrants in the Immigration Act of 1924, which is also referred to as the National Origins Act. Sponsored, in part by California Senator Hiram Johnson, it called for immigration quotas to be based on percentages of the population of a particular area already represented in the United States. This law is often referred to as the Japanese Exclusion Act, although it was designed to restrict immigration from southern and eastern Europe, which had been sizable since 1899. Despite the animosity that followed from the 1920 strike, Japanese immigrants would continue to pour into the territory of Hawaii due in part by the fact that there was no ban on Japanese immigrants owning land in the territory. By the 1920s, the Japanese had eclipsed the Chinese and the Filipinos, as well as whites and the native Hawaiians in the territory, 
quickly raising the Japanese immigrants to the majority population status on the island. By 1941, a majority of the students enrolled at the University of Hawaii were either Nisi or Halleys, Halle being a term for non-native whites born in the territory of Hawaii. Many of these students would enroll into the JROTC programs at the university, and a large number of the junior officers in the Hawaii National Guard were made up of former JROTC students. The Nisi youth and young adults of the Hawaii Territory were just like their other American counterparts. They looked at the United States as their nation and carried the same amount of patriotism towards their country. So on December 7, 1941, when the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the Nisi and their Japanese immigrant parents felt it was an attack on them just the same. On February 19, 1942, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese forces, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 with the intention of preventing espionage on American shores. Military zones were created in California, Washington, and Oregon, states with large population of Japanese Americans, and Roosevelt's executive order commanded the relocation of Americans of Japanese ancestry. Executive Order 9066 affected the lives of about 117,000 people, the majority of whom were American citizens. Canada soon followed suit, relocating 21,000 of its own Japanese residents from its west coast. Mexico enacted its own version, and eventually 2,264 more people of Japanese descent were removed from Peru, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina to the United States. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast, a little podcast that could, we keep on keeping on, and we're getting new listeners all the time, and I've been talking to one of you on my Facebook page, you've gone back and you've listened to the archives, some of the older episodes, and you were so concerned about episode one, about Dave being drunk on the podcast and whether or not he made it home safely that night, and the answer is yes, Dave did make it home. And we have been doing a podcast with him. We just hit episode 75 on the Waterman and D-Train show. You can find that podcast. We're all fine podcasts are made available on all of your normal podcast apps, as well as d-410.com. If you have any questions or interest about any of the podcasts on the Digital 410 Network, simply go to d-410.com. That is where all things can be found. That's where all of our social media links are. That's where uh, everything, email. If you guys have a question you want to contribute to the show, I am a one-man operation here on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and I know some but don't know everything, and so if you feel you have something to contribute to the show, whether you want to come on and do an interview or you want to provide me with some content, news stories, what have you, uh, please send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com or mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Both of those email addresses work. Obviously, one of them's a little more typing than the other. But yeah, we always want to hear from you. And thank you to Kristoff. Um, Kristoff is over across the pond and reached out to me about getting some content and actually booking an interview with a vet from overseas. There'll be a little logistic issue with that, but we will get it sorted out. Obviously, we have done interviews with other people across the pond, and so that's not an issue. And so if you know any vets who want to put their uh, story down on record, please reach out to us through the Facebook page or, as previously mentioned, info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. So I just recently began reading the book Rising Suns by Billy Yen, a Thomas Dunn Books publishing. And the material you heard on that monologue came from the first chapter of this book. 
And I felt it was important to relay that information to you, my listening audience, because in all the years and of all the reading and all the studying I have done on Pearl Harbor, obviously World War II, I had never heard those stats. Now, if you're like me, most of us, um, when we hear about Pearl Harbor and we hear about the Japanese internment camps that followed, we're always told that they did that to prevent espionage and they're concerned about spying and they did it for the purpose of national security. And it's always kind of hard to picture the reasoning behind that, especially now in 2019 and especially now in 2019 when everything's turned into, um, you know, race cards are pulled. And most recently, within the last year or so, we hear people bringing up the internment camps as more evidence of the historical racism in the United States. And I think if you present people with the facts and the numbers, like I presented at the beginning of this monologue, with the sizable population of the Japanese immigrants in the territory of Hawaii, i.e. the fact that there were numerically more Japanese citizens, or more correctly, more citizens with Japanese heritage and immigrants in the territory of Hawaii than there were Chinese, Filipinos, Native Hawaiians, and Caucasians, I wouldn't say it makes it more justifiable if you're in the camp of using the internment camps as evidence of systemic racism in our country's history, but I think it makes it a little more understandable to present the argument that, hey, we were doing this as a result of the need for national security and to prevent spying and espionage, because once again, you're the President of the United States. You've been trying to stay out of the war as long as you can. You've signed the Lend-Lease Act to provide supplies to you know, get involved in the war, but not to involve the young men and young women in the war and to minimize or try to completely eliminate casualties from American boys overseas. But now you just found yourself bombed. You now you're in the war, whether you want to or not. And the country that attacked you is based in the Pacific. And the largest staging area for your military to counterattack, to fight off this enemy is in the territory of Hawaii, in a group of islands where the majority of the population is made up of immigrants and ancestors who came from the home island of the country that just bombed you. So having this information available when telling the history and the bombing of Pearl Harbor that would lead to the Japanese being forced to American internment camps, it makes it a little easier to understand why that, that leap was made. Once again, your biggest naval port outside of the mainland of the United States, possibly even larger than the mainland of the United States, is in this grouping of islands out in the Pacific Ocean. It was just bombed by a country whose immigrants make up a majority of the population of this island. And if you're concerned about troop movements getting out, and you're concerned about future attacks, espionage, national security, it makes it a little more easy to understand why they would want to relocate all those people from that area and to put them into camps where they can keep an eye on them or just to relocate them away from their their military bases so they can effectively proceed in planning, initiating, and going to war with a country that just blindsided you. And before we bring on our next guest, you know the deal. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Please, while you're at WTSPWorldWar2.com, if you're going to do any Amazon shopping, please click on the Amazon link, save it to your favorite, save it to your desktop, put it wherever you want to, 
And whenever you buy those gifts on Amazon, please choose that link and they will send us a few coins. And once those coins add up to a couple of bucks, they will allow us to transfer it into our bank account and it will help support the network. You guys have been doing great on the t-shirt front. I've sold more whatsthescuttlebutt.com t-shirts than I have any of the other podcasts. So I really don't have to beat you over the head with that. If you're looking for a WTSP World War II t-shirt, simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. There's a t-shirt on the right. That'll take you to our shopping front, our storefront, if you will. All of our t-shirts will be available for you to order. Um, I try to keep the prices low. To be honest with you, when I make those, they suggest I sell them for $26 a piece so I can make $10. I don't expect you to buy a $26 t-shirt, and so I sell them for $19 to $20. Bucks. Full disclosure, I make $4 off each t-shirt. I'm not getting rich off t-shirts, but you guys are showing the love. You're advertising for us, and we do make a few coins. So if you want to buy some t-shirts, that would be awesome. And as you know, if you're on our website, WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link on the right-hand side. There's three tiers. One's a dollar a month, one's $3.50 a month, and one's $7.50 a month. And if you sign up for the last tier, the $7.50 a month, after p- month two, I will send you a t-shirt. I just sent out two of them this week. And you say, well, what else is the benefits from joining Patreon? Not only do you support our channel, but you do get some exclusive content. I got a big deal coming up next weekend. I'm going to be filming a new product review for the YouTube channel, a sponsored product review. Not sponsored in the form that they're paying me, but sponsored in the form that they're actually sending me the product to review. So we're moving up in the world as far as our video production goes. I'm excited about this production. I'm putting a lot of time. I got Jerry and his son coming down from Bradenton to help produce this bit. I got another local World War II reenactor bringing out some equipment. This item is World War II based themed loosely. Um, it was just released. A little hint there. For those of you who follow the Facebook page, you may know what I'm talking about. But um, I'm going to put that together. We're going to get that out, and hopefully maybe I can uh, try to create a giveaway around that product. That would be awesome. But yeah, if you sign up for Patreon, you will get some exclusive content. There is an exclusive video up right now about my hives and how I got covered in hives for the last week and how I've been dealing with hives. Um, I'm not going to bore you with that. You can hear me talk about it on the Waterman and D-Train Show podcast from last week, or you can join Patreon and see the video, see it in full color, and enjoy that. And last but not least, for those of you working out, trying to look better in your uniform, trying to get healthier, trying to live longer, whatever your motivation may be, go to sleefs.com. That's S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Whatever you order on there, use the promo code D41040 at checkout, and that will save you 40% on your entire shopping cart. And we do have a digital 410 YouTube channel now. Now it's no longer youtube.com forward slash a bunch of random numbers and names. Uh, Just go to YouTube, type in digital 410. Please subscribe to our channel. Uh, Like I said, we are working on videos all the time. I'm trying to get up at least one video a week. Not all of it will be World War II based, obviously, because Digital 410 is a wide production company. We have three podcasts. We have different content. Um, So, yeah, check that out, digital410.com or Digital 410, for that matter, on YouTube. Check out all of our latest videos. And now, on with the show. On the latest episode of the Fail to Fail podcast. And joining us on the phone now, Miss Annie Woods. Annie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. I love getting in more in tune with nature, you know, like really starting to see the bigger picture of all those processes that were going on 
you know, out in the woods on a daily basis that, you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't be exposed to unless they really stopped and paid attention to it. And so um, I think hand in hand with that, when you're, when you're studying nature in that way, you start to think about, okay, what am, what as a human being, you know, what's my impact on all of this? And so, you know, I was doing science and I saw myself as a scientist, but I also thought, you know, is there another way, like what else can I do with my daily life that would maybe bring about good for nature rather than be destructive or harmful or take away from all these really cool things that are going on out here. The Failed to Fail podcast can be found at failedtofail.com, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded. And joining us from Fredericksburg, Texas right now, we've been trying to get this thing going for a while, but he is a world traveler. He's a historian. He is a uh, man of passion and uh, interest and knowledge. I met Mr. Al Prentice when I was out in Fredericksburg, Texas at the National Museum for the Pacific War. He was nice enough to allow me to stay at his property up on the hillside at the Bella Vista Ranch. And for those of you who have been waiting, yes, I do have a video that's currently being produced of my travels to Fredericksburg, Texas, but we didn't want to just rush it out and make it look like a home video. We want to put some effort into it, but we'll get into more of that later. Joining us this morning from the phone, Al. Al, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Don. How are you? I'm doing quite well. I'm here in Florida, and we're looking down the barrel of a uh, hurricane called Hurricane Durian. Now, I've survived five hurricanes. I'm not too sure how I feel about a hurricane named after the world's smelliest fruit, but we will deal with that as it comes. Um, Luckily, the way the current spaghetti maps predict is when it comes, it's going to hit the East Coast, which is sad for Miami, but unfortunately, when you live in hurricane territory, you almost have to take on the um, saying of, it's better them than me. As horrible as that sounds, that's just kind of the way it is. But if it hits the East Coast, by the time it gets over here to where I'm at in Southwest Florida, I will be on the outer bands of a Hurricane Cat 2, which after living through two fives is not a big deal. Um, just means potential of not having power and water all weekend and lots of rain. But that's neither here nor there. That's basically, we're just driving around, dealing with people freaking out, hoarding gas and water, which makes it harder to have gas to go about your daily commute. But Al, you've been all over the world this summer. Um, I met you, like I said, out at, Fre- out at Fredericksburg as part of the um, National Museum Pacific War weekend. First, let's before we get into everything you've been doing, let's get into you a little bit, um, what you do for a living, how you got into living history, and what attracts you so much to the era of the 1940s and World War II. Okay. Well, thank you, Don. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, look, been looking forward to this uh, call. Um, before I get into that, though, uh, let me just say I grew up in South Louisiana. I've been through many hurricanes myself, including one that went through South Florida back in 92, uh, Andrew, uh, that was so devastating down below Miami, but then it also reformed in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, hit the coast of Louisiana and really devastated my hometown of New Iberia. So uh, I know what you're in for, and uh, just stay safe and hunker down. You should be uh, okay on the west coast of Florida with this one coming across the east coast, but uh, it still is probably going to be a major rain event, so stay safe. Well, I can definitely tell you're used to the terminology because you say things like rain event, but it's interesting you bring up Hurricane Andrew because that is the hurricane that changed everything. 
Um, I moved to Florida in 04, six months before Hurricane Charlie, which was a Cat 5 that landed right on top of where I live. And, of course, obviously I didn't know anything about building codes or hurricanes and damage and all that. But what I quickly discovered was any of the homes built prior to Hurricane Andrew got knocked down. They got blown over. They didn't have the building codes. But ever since Hurricane Andrew and the amount of devastation that caused, that forced our engineers and our um, code compliance people all through the state of Florida to reevaluate how we build things. And that is part of the reason why now when you build a home down here in southwest Florida or anywhere in Florida for that matter, if it's made out of cinder block, you got to stack the block, you got to plant rebar down it, and then you got to dump concrete down it to reinforce the walls. And because of the damage and the pain that Hurricane Andrew caused, it has actually created a safer society and um, better, stronger homes for us. And so basically, if you have a house that's built post Andrew, as long as you um, you know you have reinforced garages and and you put up your shutters, you know the likelihood of your house suffering catastrophic damage has been greatly minimized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my mother lives in the in Florida, also in the Panhandle, and my sisters have uh, vacation homes there also, and that's where we probably will wind up at some point in retirement in the uh in the panhandle area and uh so we've talked to contractors and done some preliminary work and yeah florida especially if you're building on the coast you really have to uh adhere to these new standards which is probably a good thing but boy it it increases the price of homes 50 75 almost 100 percent not to mention insurance costs but i guess we digress a little bit from uh the purpose of our conversation here but that's all right you know not everything has to be on point all the time but yeah i mean it's just it's one of those things we deal with it's you know in california it's earthquakes and wildfires in uh florida louisiana and even parts of uh, southern texas it's hurricanes yep yeah it's just uh, part of the uh the trade-off for living in a beautiful part of the country so at some point you left louisiana but did you get into history early on in life or is that something like a lot of us that developed later in life when our maturity level grew and we got to grow you know, I think a lot of people's appreciation for, you know, uh, military and world history and, you know, I don't to say appreciation for war, I guess, is a little rough. But let's say uh, the acknowledgement of the um, atrocities of war, I guess we kind of gain appreciation for that as we get older and we gain an appreciation for the value of human life. I think when we're younger, we're a little more callous. We all think we're invincible and we don't think too much about you know, how short and how precious life is. And so I think a lot of us get more into this as we get older and we gain that appreciation for life and how short life is that we put a little more thought and um, appreciation into what the generations before us did. Yeah, that's true. And uh, that certainly has happened in my case. But uh, from where it started with me, at least, uh, was totally the opposite. Um I first became interested and fascinated with uh, history, and then especially World War II history, as a young child growing up in, in South Louisiana in the, in the early 60s. Uh, I used to watch a documentary, one of the first documentaries with my dad, narrated by Walter Cronkite. Uh, it's an old, old series called The 20th Century. And in that uh, series, although it was about all the major events during uh, the, the 20th century, the, re the main focus really was on World War II. And that's what really started stoking my interest. 
then in uh, the early 60s, I think it was 62 or 63, I read as a, just as a young elementary school student a book that – one of the books that really changed my life, and it was a book called Guadalcanal Diary by Richard Tregascus, who was a war correspondent and actually served there on Guadalcanal. I don't know what it was about that, but something just really stoked an interest in me at that point. And from that point forward, uh, I guess I was kind of a, a bit of a nerd about it, but I just grabbed and read everything I could find. Even in elementary school, I even read the entire Chronicles uh, of uh, uh, Arleigh Burke's um, series on destroyer warfare in the South Pacific during World War II. And believe it or not, I actually found that completely fascinating. And in fact, coming full circle, now I'm almost 66 years old and uh, I'm in I'm in the final stages of another great book about the same uh, battles called Neptune's Inferno, which is about the naval battles in and around Guadalcanal uh, during the early stages of World War II uh, from from uh, August well July or August of 1942 through February of uh, 43. Just a fascinating book. So that's where my interest started. And it's just continued to grow and continued to grow. Uh, as far as the uh, not, not to pause you, but I, I just want to mention something real quick. As you mentioned the book, the Guadalcanal Diaries, there was a cathud because I got excited and my microphone hit my face because I went to stand up. Here in the podcast, I have a World War II book library. And I'm thinking, I think I have that book. And I quickly got up and I looked. And yes, I have it right here. It's um, actually a first edition. Um, a listener of ours named Cowboy, he's been on the show a few times. He let me borrow this a few years back, but this is actually the 1943 publishing of it. So, I mean, this is early version of this book. And this is definitely a great book. And I don't know, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but, you know, when it comes to the theater of operations, I can't explain it. I don't know what it is, but the PTO definitely seems to reach out to me more and have more of a a um, grasp on my imagination. I, I don't know if it's because not only was the enemy such a formidable enemy and, and you know, well entrenched, but if maybe because of the environment that they were fighting against as well. Um, there's just something about the, you know, what the Marines and the Army and the Seabees and the Navy and all that, the the amount of effort it took to get the, um, the war in the Pacific over with. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I actually kind of go back and forth, but the fascination with the Pacific Theater is that it actually the uh, the battles and the action actually encompassed a much longer period of time mm -hmm. uh, in in Europe, really out, outside of the Italian campaign in, in Sicily. The European theater of operations was primarily an, an, an air battle, except for the last eleven months of the war, after, from Normandy until the surrender of the Germans. Uh, in May of 45. So it, maybe that's part of it. Um, and, and the fact that there was such an inter-service combination in the Pacific, it, the, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, none could do it by themselves. And uh, it, it really took a coordinated effort. And it was just fascinating the way that they did that, going from island to island to island to island. It was, it was just an amazing both strategic and tactical series of events that, that made that possible. And it never could have happened without great leaders and great minds, much like uh, Chester Nimitz, who really led the whole thing. Sure.
But as you were saying before I rudely interrupted you about my excitement of having the book that got you into this whole thing sitting here on my shelf that Cowboy so graciously allowed me to borrow a few years back, I guess I really need to get it back to him. But as you were yeah. saying... Uh, well, I, ha I have lots of similar uh, type books, and uh, I've borrowed some, um, bought many of them, and I have... Uh, I, in fact, I actually started my own World War II library as a teenager, and have just continued to grow it today, much to the chagrin of my wife. Well, let me ask you this. This is something I brought up on earlier episodes of this podcast, especially nowadays. It's 2019. We all got tablets. We all got cell phones. We got laptops, computers. I feel that it's extremely, extremely important that we maintain our hard copies of our history books. I think it's way too easy to edit digital copy of books. And as we all know, to the victors go the spoil and history is written by the victors. And we also know that when tyranny comes, so does re-education. And so I think it's that much more important, regardless of what happens in the publishing world in the future. I'm sure more and more of it's going to get digitized and less of it's going to get printed into hard copies. But I think it is of, of most importance to maintain hard copies of our history books so that it, they cannot be easily edited to follow the mind state of whoever's in control at that time. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And on a, uh, a parallel point, uh, I, um, I do use some electronic media and I like to go online and find stuff. And there's no, it, it, that is that part of the, the social media and the electronic media in particular is so far ahead of where we used to be. Uh, everything is instantly available in much more detail than it ever used to be. But I'm a little bit old school in terms of I just like the feel of a book mm -hmm. uh, when I'm reading it and the fact that I can store it on my shelves. I'm looking at my uh, some of my bookshelves right now at our uh, down at our ranch, and uh, I just love the feel of being able to go back and look at some books and and uh, remember things that I maybe had forgotten and gone on to look to to uh, examine other um, uh, opportunities. So. To me, I, I just I still love the the feel and the look, and the 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 excitement I get when I'm reading just a, a physical hard copy book. And let's not overlook the importance of having something in our life that doesn't require a battery charge at the end of the day. I mean, everything we have, yeah. whether it's your cell phone, your your earbuds, your tablet, your laptop, your car, we're getting everything needs to be charged at the end of the day. And let's just books you know especially hurricane season you know worst case scenario i might be reading some books this weekend there you go yeah and so as i alluded to at the beginning of this interview you've had a busy summer uh first and foremost um you are a reoccurring volunteer and so is your wife becky at the national museum for the pacific war um you guys especially your wife really go out as far as making sure the volunteers are well taken care of especially in the food and you know accommodation styles and realm how did you get started out at the national museum of the pacific war well uh like i said uh as i was uh developing my interest in world war ii from a from a, a young child and through teenager and young adulthood i got to the point where um I, you know i was reading everything i could uh, watching any type of uh documentaries and movies and things like that but I never even knew or realized that things like reenactments even existed. 
Uh, I would go to as many museums as I as I could find, uh, but they're really, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, even 90s, there really weren't that many uh, World War II active museums and no reenactments that I knew of. I had heard of some Civil War reenactments, and that sounded interesting. I actually saw one in Vicksburg, but that didn't capture my imagination as much as World War II did. And then one day, uh, we we live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and my wife wanted to go down to Fredericksburg, primarily for the shopping and the, the wineries and that type of thing. And mm-hmm. she said, and oh, by the way, there's a, a World War II museum there. And I said, oh, really? I said, so let's go. And so anyway, we went, and we went through the museum. It's sort of innocuous when you first see it on the from the front entrance mm-hmm. on Main Street in Fredericksburg. The, the biggest thing that you see is the, the old Nimitz Hotel, where Chester Nimitz grew up and lived. But once you start walking through there and then you walk through the courtyard, it blows you away at the the significance of what's there and the, the, the tasteful way that they have laid it out. All the plaques and monuments to the different uh, units and ships and that, that served in the Pacific in that big courtyard. And then you walk into the back and then there's that presidential circle there with the military history of the modern presidents, those, those who did serve. And then that leads you into the entrance of the museum. And I walked in there not really knowing what to expect, and I was just absolutely blown away by the, the level of detail and the, the knowledgeable people there and the artifacts. And, I mean, there's a tank in there that was actually a Japanese tank that was actually uh, hit and destroyed. I think it was in New Guinea, and it, it's on display, and it even shows where the anti-tank rocket hit it and, and blew open the the uh, the hole there. So, I mean, it, it was just a great experience. I, I spent several hours there and could have gone back and did go back for more. But it was right just a chance coincidence at the end of the tour. I was talking to one of the people, uh, the docents, I guess, that, that were there, and they said, well, if you like that, then you really ought to be sure and go see the reenactment. And I said, well, what reenactment? So they told me about it. It was only a block and a half away. And they said they're having one this afternoon. So I said, absolutely. So we walked on down there. And this was the actually the last performance in the old uh, reenactment zone before they did the big modern renovation that exists today. And uh, my wife and I sat in there, and we watched that reenactment. And it was it was a lot smaller than it is today, but it was just awe-inspiring. And at the beginning and the end, there was one character in particular that just really stood out, and that's Colonel Bill. And he's the Marine who leads the assault team on the Japanese bunker at the end. And he carries the assault shotgun. And uh, he's a he's a real veteran, and uh, there, there's just no doubting his authenticity and his passion and his uh, desire for for the for this type of event. And when I saw him, I was just I turned to my wife and I say, "Oh my God, I want to be a part of this." So I went down and volunteered, and they said, you know, unfortunately they were that was their last performance. They were shutting down for a year to renovate it. But they would get back with me, and sure enough, they did. Three years ago, they called me up and asked if I was still interested. I said, absolutely. I went through an interview, went down, and I have um, 
gotten so wrapped up in it that I've actually bought my own uniforms now. And uh, I try to participate in almost every single one, and I make most of them. Uh, in fact, we got my wife and I got so wrapped up in it and so involved that we actually, as you had mentioned earlier, bought a place here in Fredericksburg. It's a small little ranch, and we've converted it into a, a B&B whenever we're not here. But we stay here uh, for about a week each month that coincides with the reenactments down at the uh, at the museum. And in fact, I'm sitting out on my patio right now overlooking uh, Fredericksburg and where we'll be this weekend. So that's how I got into this. Now, is that property, is that set amongst some cattle ranch or is that in between some nature preserve? Because I know when I was driving out there in the mornings and in the evening times, there was a lot, a lot of whitetail running around, obviously the horses. Um, I didn't know if that you're nestled up in between two ranches, if those were nature preserves, but the, the hill, I mean, you're up on top of a hill. You have a 360-degree area of the hill country of that area of Texas. It's completely awe-inspiring and beautiful, but just how quiet and all the, you know, like I said, all the white-tailed deer running around, not to mention the tarantulas, but um, are you located in between ranches, or is that a nature preserve out there? No, it's not a nature preserve. As I look around here, these are all uh, either cattle ranches, sheep ranches, or goat ranches. And uh, but there's yeah, lots of cattle, and uh, that is just uh, it's all privately owned. But um, I probably we probably have the one of the smaller pieces of property here. We have ten acres. I think most of these folks have anywhere from. 20 to uh, 200 or maybe even a thousand acres but it's mostly uh, goats cattle and sheep it's definitely a beautiful property and as i said on past episodes if you're out in fredericksburg and you're going to head out to the national museum of pacific war and you're wanting to stay you know turn your vacation into something more than just staying in town and, and drinking the wine if you want to get out to stay out of the city a little bit have a beautiful view plus have solitude um check out al's property it's called bella vista ranch and you can find more information at bella vista ranch hill country tx.com or give them a call at 866-427-8374 and they will give you all their booking information and that's definitely in my mind the best place to stay because that's where i stayed and it's you know it's just an awesome beautiful place now al um texas and the national museum of World War, National Museum of Pacific War. Um, that was just a little bit of what you've done this summer, but you went out across the pond for the 75th anniversary of the Normandy invasion, obviously out in Normandy, France, and you were out there right around the time the rest of the world was out there. Was that your first time out there? No, Don, uh, that was my third trip out there. I had been to uh, France a couple of times on business, and stayed over uh, an extra three or four days and decided to uh, go. I wanted to go take a look at Normandy because it's something, like I said earlier, that I've read about and heard about and seen on movies and documentaries forever and ever. And I wanted to see it for myself. And I was just blown away. Um, I had uh, a couple of maps, but of course, in today's modern technology, GPS is just unbelievable. And it works as well as it works in the United States, it works just like that everywhere else I've been. And so I, just by using uh, what I remembered in, in my head and the maps that I had and then the, using GPS, I was able to get to virtually every place that I wanted to get to. And um, so I was, since the, 
when I first went, my first couple of trips, uh, it was not during one of the major anniversaries. So the areas were not very crowded. And uh, I was able to visit, get right down on the beach at Omaha and Utah beaches, and as well as the uh, the British beaches and Canadian beaches at Gold, Juno, and Sword. And uh, and then, you know, go and see all the mu- – there's lots and lots of uh, – privately owned and publicly owned museums all around that area that are just uh, full of artifacts. Um, and, and, you know, it's really what one of the things that's just really amazing is to this day, how grateful and, um, and open and generous the people of, especially France are, they still see Americans as their, um, as their liberators. And even though I'm two generations removed almost uh, from that era and obviously had nothing to do with it personally, they, they come up to you and thank you as if you were the ones that, that uh, liberated them from tyranny. So it, it's a, it was just a really wonderful trip. But this year was something different, and it was something that uh, I really wanted to do and my wife wanted to do. And so we've been planning this follow-up trip to be there for the 75th anniversary to honor those veterans um, that are, that are still around. And there's an amazing number of them that, that are. And uh, so we've been planning this trip for a couple of years and because there were going to be so, it was going to be so crowded and there was going to be so many dignitaries. I decided not to do this one on my own. And we went with one of the organized tours and uh, we chose uh, Beyond Band of Brothers mm-hmm. simply because that was one of the ones that we had seen uh, earliest on. And uh, they were well organized. They've been around for a while. And they just did a wonderful job. And we were able to uh, – we stayed at a hotel in Cannes. And uh, we would take trips each day. There was a, it was a seven-day excursion. Uh, and we would go to different areas. So we went to – of course, all the uh, the British and Commonwealth Canadian uh, beaches went to Pegasus Bridge, which was just absolutely fascinating to see where the British gliders and paratroopers came in. The, those glider uh, pilots landed those three gliders right up against the bridge in just a unbelievably small little field. It was just an amazing feat of of uh, of airmanship that I, I still can't get over. And they were able to completely take the Germans by surprise and capture the two bridges uh, over the River Orne and the canal uh, that were only just a mile or two apart. Uh, but that was just part of it. I mean, going to Omaha Beach and Utah Beach, St. Marigliese, up to Cherbourg, which was the, one of the strategic objectives of the Utah Beach had to begin with so they could get uh, a deep water port as soon as possible. Of course, the Germans uh sabotage the, the port and it, it took a lot longer to get in there than we thought but um it that, that was just another fascinating part and one of the most interesting parts of that whole trip was when we went to aramash which is in between the uh, uh gold beach and uh omaha beach where the americans landed so it was that area in between the americans and the british and it's where the two interesting things about that is that um, that is where the Germans had some big guns, uh, I think it was 155 millimeter guns that were set back there and had to be taken out and destroyed. 
and many of the most of the the bunkers and the and the pillboxes and the big uh, uh, gun placements and casements are still there, so you can walk around and see them. But the other thing that was so interesting is the remains of the Mulberry Harbor that are still there and are still uh, available, still visible whenever the tide goes out, especially. And to, to see that and to realize that that was the way that they, the allies brought over the, all the supplies and the tanks and the, and the vehicles and the trucks, everything that was beyond what could land on a Higgins boat right on the beach to be able to build a harbor, mm-hmm. tow it across the English Channel, anchor it in place, and then, of course, about two weeks later, after, after the D-Day on June 6th, uh, two and a half weeks later, there was a huge storm that came through the, through the English Channel and destroyed. There was actually two Mulberry Harbors, one over on the other side of Omaha Beach and then one over at Eromash, and the, uh, the American one was completely destroyed, and but the uh, the one at Arrow Marsh in between was uh, partially destroyed, and then they rebuilt it in about three days, and they used that all the way until the end of September, and that's how they brought everything that they were using in order to keep the offensive going, from tuck, uh, trucks and tanks and jeeps and ammunition, food, everything that they had to have, as well as the additional men that were coming ashore all came through that Mulberry Harbor. And to think that here we are 75 years later, and much of it is still visible from the beach, it was just an amazing sight. And I've got a lot of pictures of that in particular. And then one more thing about that that day at Arrow Manche, we happened to be having lunch in Arrow Manche in between the, the two little tours around that area. And we, were, we decided uh, the first restaurant that we went to was a little too crowded, so we walked a little bit further up the street, and we went, we found another one that wasn't nearly as crowded. And we sat down at this little table, and about halfway through our little lunch there, we I looked over, and at the very next table, almost I could reach out and touch him, was an older gentleman in um, uh, a camel suit uh, pea coat that was sitting there, and obviously he, he obviously had to be a, a veteran. So I went up and introduced myself, and um, you know asked him if he was a veteran and thanked him for his service. And he started talking about what he had done. And he had been a part of the British 50th Infantry Division that came ashore in the first wave at, uh, at Gold Beach. Uh, and he, he talked, you know, he just talked about his experiences. And it was just absolutely fascinating. Actually, the whole trip was worth just that conversation with that gentleman and i've got a couple of pictures of him uh at that point uh so anyway yeah because I'm, I'm it's kind of rambling but that no, it, that was just an amazing part of that trip and that's one of the um perks i guess we'll say no i don't want to say luxury but perk i mean it's always a luxury to talk to those guys but that's one of the perks you have about having a relationship with the museum is because they have regular vets who come out there and talk and obviously, the more you're there, the more them around them you are, the more relationship you create with them, and the more stories you get to hear. And you know, that's one of the things we try to do in this podcast is to interview vets, but they're getting so harder and harder to track down. I was actually at a restaurant last week, and there was a Korean War vet there, and I got my business card ready. But 
he was sitting at a table next to me and his wife had came over and asked us if it was all right that she had stored their umbrellas and all that behind us. And I said, yeah, but I was watching his, his mannerism a little bit. And, and I started to realize that, uh, he was suffering from Alzheimer's. And so when his wife came over again, you know, I was kind of feeling her out cause I, you know, want to start interviewing Korean war vets as well. And, but I asked her, so how's his recall? And she said, not very well that the Alzheimer's get a hold of him quickly. And so, it's definitely getting harder and harder, especially if you're not um, around historical, you know, landmarks or areas where museums are at that these vets are traveling to. Um, it's getting harder and harder to track them down and to interview them, and that's why we always ask those of you listening to this podcast if you know of any vets or anybody who would be willing to get their uh, history on file, whether they are World War II or Korean War vets. Please email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com or info at D-410.com or simply send me a message on Facebook. We obviously want to interview as many vets and share their stories with you, our audience, as possible. But once again, they're getting harder and harder to find. And so that's why it's more important now to get out to these events where these guys are attracted to, to meet them while you have the chance, shake their hands, and listen to their stories because it's definitely what we're all into this for. Now, let me ask you this, Al. Um, you've been out to that area a few times. Now, obviously, this year being the 75th anniversary, um, more and more interest was spotlight upon that area. Do you feel or did you notice, do you think that we are, when I say we, I'm, I'm painting with a broad stroke obviously we weren't there but those who were there do you think we are doing our part in honoring um um, you know majority of them are honoring and following up with the way we should treat this whole experience or did at some points did you feel like it's almost getting like a disneyland feel to it especially it being a 75th anniversary well, uh, there, there is a, a, a segment of that that it almost – and it, it's probably inevitable that that's going to happen as we get further and further away from the time that it happened and, um, you know, you get more generations separated. Uh, that's, that's probably inevitable. But, no, by and large, uh, especially on that trip that we took to this past time at the 75th anniversary, um, everybody was – just so respectful and awestruck and so interested in um, the events that were going on and the artifacts that were there and the people that were there. No, I, I didn't. I personally didn't get that feeling. It may have been there, but I'm probably blind to it if it does exist because I'm just so fascinated with just standing on that hallowed ground and looking at those facilities and and real. Every time I go, every time I read about those things, I find out something different. Like, for instance, um, on Omaha Beach, you know, the, uh, the 29th Division, the 116th Regiment of the 29th Division just got decimated as they came across the beach at, there. And, of course, the, the 1st Infantry Division was on their, was on their flank. But I, it always amazed me as to why they took such heavy casualties and why that was such a devastating part. And for some reason, it never registered with me until I actually went and saw it, that especially on Omaha Beach there, that Rommel had instructed the defenders to not build the pillboxes in the standard manner where they were aiming out to sea because you had a 
that would limit their range of fire, and it would make them visible to the uh, the American defenders and especially the naval forces. So the most of the pillboxes were built so that they were aiming down the beach, not out to sea. So that they what that did was it gave them broader ranges of fire along the beach because they knew they couldn't uh, stop them out at sea, it, but it gave them better ranges of fire down the beach, and it also made it much more difficult, if not impossible, for the destroyers and battleships to be able to uh, pinpoint their positions. The muzzle flashes were, were uh, hidden by the sides of the pillboxes, and once I realized that and saw them and saw the way that they were aimed, it just, it, it just lent so much more uh, credibility and understanding as to how that could have happened in the first place. And what the other side of that, of course, is what tremendous courage and, and dedication it had to, it did take from those members of that, of that group to be able to storm those beaches and to, uh, and to come under that withering fire and not stop and to keep going. Um, if you want to, a representation of that, probably the best one, is Saving Private Ryan in the opening scene when they're charging across. That's that is Omaha Beach, and that's essentially the 29th Division. In fact, the 116th Regiment that was uh, coming across that way and suffered such huge casualties. And yet, in ones and twos and threes, they were able to make it across the beach on their own, start climbing up the hill, and eventually knocking out the Germans pillbox by pillbox. That that was one of the most amazing things to me of that um, of this last trip. Well, it's interesting you're talking about the strategic placement of the um, machine guns inside the bunkers themselves. That played a huge. Uh, it, interestingly enough, thinking about it, it kind of helped and it hurt us. Obviously, it hurt us because it allowed the Germans to cause such casualty rates with such a few number of men. I mean, you go read some of the first hands of uh, Normandy Beach. Um, I think the one gentleman on the German side who was manning the uh, MG42 was like 13 years old, and he personally, I think, went like 20,000 rounds or something. But because of the placement, one, they were able to inflict such casualties in such large numbers with such few men on their side. But also, where that worked our way is once we were able to get past that plateau or that that dead man's point once we're able to get enough men past that it was quicker for us to capture that point because of the few amount of men that they had there because of the strategic placements of those bunkers so it worked against us as far as their ability to cause such casualty with such few men but it also helped us in a way once we were able to get up there that it was quicker to capture that point opposed to trying to fight off you know 2500 men or more yeah, that is true, but what played an even bigger role in that part of the strategy is the fact that uh, the Allies were able, well, two things. The Allies were able to uh, successfully trick the Germans into thinking mm -hmm. that we were going to attack at the shortest point across the channel, at the Pas de Calais, and uh, to, even to the point of knowing that the Germans were convinced that Patton would lead the offensive, and they placed him in charge of a phantom army, in England, right at that uh, opposite shore, across from Calais, that kept most of the German armor and most of their uh, elite infantry uh, stationed way up north in in northern France, 
in that area. And then the second was the, the fact that uh, Hitler would not relinquish uh, tactical control to his, uh, to his leaders, especially von Rundstedt and Rommel, and let them move that armor into that, into that breach. If they had immediately, it could have had a completely different, different result. So it was, uh, it was a combination of uh, great strategic and t- uh, tactical thinking on the Allies' part, especially Eisenhower's, and then, of course, capitalizing on the blunders uh, of Hitler. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it could have easily had a different uh, outcome. Hitler's narcissism lent great value to our war effort. There are so many things that he did or didn't do because of his own narcissism that helped shorten the war greatly. Um, obviously, a lot of his narcissism led to the atrocities that happened in the war. But to rewind a little bit, one of the other things, we were talking about the high casualty rates and what led to them during the beach landings. Obviously, with the exception of those who fought during the you know Africa campaigns in Italy, a majority of our pilots that night were new. The Very, very few of them had actually seen combat, especially if you look at the numbers about of how many planes were out there. And part of our beach landing... Um, planning was to use the craters that were supposed to be created by the pre-landing bombings as a way to get below the surface, if you will. Um, there's huge craters. We can fit large amounts of men below the, uh, the landline, below the fire, in large quantities without having to dig a bunch of foxholes. Well, sadly, a lot of those bombs missed their targets, and we didn't have the huge deep craters on the beaches that we were planning to have and so that also led to the casualties from the machine gun fires because our guys had nowhere to go to get underneath the surface yep that's exactly right um uh, that's especially true on omaha and utah beach on omaha it probably wouldn't have made a whole lot of difference anyway because the tidal movement there is so dramatic that even if they had uh, got into those craters along the beach they would have, if they had stayed there, they would have drowned because the, the tide moves uh, many, many dozens of feet uh, in a very short period of time. And even on D-Day, many of the soldiers who dropped down onto the sand uh, when they went on the first wave or two were quickly swallowed up by the, by the waves and the, and the tide as it came in. And, and the reason that it didn't work that well is because in, in reality, the, the Allied uh, bombers were scared to death of dropping their bombs too short. That had happened a couple of times in the past in Italy, in the Italian campaign and in Sicily. And so they held on an extra couple of seconds. Well, when you're flying at 200 miles an hour and dropping bombs, an extra couple of seconds might mean a mild difference mm-hmm. in where those, those bombs la- uh, uh, land. But I tell you where it was effective um, was at Point du Hoc, where the Rangers, the 2nd Ranger Battalion, had to capture those gun emplacements, those 155-millimeter gun emplacements that were overlooking both Utah and Omaha Beach. That was unbelievable, but that was assigned to the battleship USS Texas, and with its 14 and I think 16-inch guns, it it blasted that area along with uh, an aerial bombardment the day before. And when you walk around on Point de Hoc and you can walk through there and, and, and still see a lot of the German emplacements and go down into some of those bunkers. But I'll tell you what is really impressive is as you walk through there, it's like a moonscape because those craters from that naval and air bombardment 
uh, earlier in that day and the day before are still there, and they're unbelievably huge. And uh, so it really was effective right there uh, and, and was, you know, a big part of um, the success of Colonel Rudder's 2nd Ranger Battalion to, to get up those cliffs, scale the cliffs, and capture that area. Now, of course, once they got to those gun emplacements, they found that the guns had been moved, and sometimes people are kind of critical that the Army uh, missed it on that, but uh, they actually didn't miss their assignment. The Rangers kept going and found those guns further inland and destroyed them that same day. Yeah, I know there's a book that just recently came out within the last six months called The Cover-Up of Point Du Hoc, and I know they're even making um, a small production to uh, shine some more light on the efforts of the Rangers and what they did at Point Du Hoc, and that'll be uh, something to look forward to when it comes out. Let me ask you this. I like to ask this when I talk to people who've been to locations where these battles have happened. Obviously, the answer is yes when it comes to Normandy, and you're standing uh, up the top, and you're overlooking the beaches. But when you're there, and it's something you've been reading about, looking at photos and studying, I mean, we all spend all of our passion time reading. I don't read fiction books. I read all World War II stuff. I have an unexplainable, unquenchable thirst for all things World War II. But when you're out at these locations, and you look out, and you get to be there, I mean... I can only imagine when you're standing out looking out into the ocean, you can kind of see in your mind all the ships out there, the landing crafts coming in, and you just realize the logistical um, magnitude of something like this, or like you are saying earlier, the um, gliders that landed in the field was even smaller than you could even imagine it was. Is it always kind of mind-blowing to you, or does it kind of put a a finalization stamp on it, if you will, that when you're when you're out and you see these places in real life, how no matter how much reading or studying or how many photos you can look at, you never get the full picture until your feet's on the ground? It never, ever gets old. Uh, every time I see those places, I all, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. I get tingles up and down my spine. It's just, I, I just get so excited um, to be able to actually see the places that I've read about and heard about uh, for all my life uh, is it, just amazing. And, and to realize the unbelievable acts of, of heroism on both sides, really, on both sides by not grown men like me, but by young kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of those, most of those participants were, like you said earlier, between 16 and probably 22 years old. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I... I've come to the conclusion that I don't think I could have done it. I really don't. I don't know how they did it. Uh, it it's one of the great mysteries of, of life. I don't think I could have done it, uh, especially, obviously not at my age now, but even when I was their age, I just don't think I could have done it. And it's just amazing to me, and I'm just in awe every time I get to see those places. You know, one of those places that brings back um, or, or that evoked – some of those emotions that you were just uh, describing is at St. Marigliese, where, uh, you know, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne were all dropped intermingled around that area. Um, in, the, in the famous movie, The Longest Day, that's where uh, Red Buttons comes down in the parachute and lands in the, uh, in the church steeple. Well, in that little square in St. Marigliese, which we, were, we also went to this summer, um, there is still... They still have the parachute hanging with a mannequin from that same church 
in that in that little square. Uh, usually it's a sleepy little village. When I went there the first time, it was just a sleepy little village because it wasn't one of the anniversaries. But this year, you would not believe how many people were there. There were, it was just, there were literally thousands of people. It was just wall-to-wall people, which actually kind of took away a little of the um, uh, authenticity sure. of it. I actually kind of liked St. Heracles a little better when I was able to go on my own. But at any rate, it was a huge, huge celebration that the French uh, were, were putting on there. And, of course, there was lots of Americans there. In fact, um, of all things, uh, the University of Texas Alumni Marching Band was leading a parade nice. along with the New York City Police Department That's right great. down the middle of the of the square there in St. Marigliese. Well, not to give people the bends, but you and last week's uh, guest, historian uh, Jared Frederick, you were both out in Normandy this year for the 75th anniversary. You were both at Pegasus Bridge, and you were both at Conneaut, Ohio for the 75th anniversary D-Day reenactment. Now, obviously, you were just out at the real deal, Holyfield, the real McCoy, at the beginning of the summer, and now you find yourself standing out in Ohio in the dead dog days of summer in the middle of August. I guess this year was so hot that I've seen a lot of people complaining that a lot of the reenactors when they're landing didn't have on their M41 jackets, and a lot of people cried foul on that. But we'll save that argument for another day when we spend a lot of time talking about people who spend their lives on FarbFest webpages, which I don't get. But how was the Connie event? It's on my bucket list. I'm going to try to go next year. I just wasn't able to make that trip this year. But how how was that as far as obviously when it comes to reenacting, that's the biggest one in the country. You're not going to get anything larger than that. But what was your impression on that? Don, that was freaking awesome. <laughs> that is an amazing event. It's the largest world. Uh, I mean, the largest uh, D-Day reenactment in the world. This year, there were about 2000 reenactors from the free French to the British Canadians, uh, the Poles. Uh, and of course, the Germans and the Americans. Um, I, I uh, serve or work with the uh, reenactors that portray the Fifth Ranger Division, which was going to be the backup for the Second Ranger Division at Point Du Hoc. But once Colonel Rudder had uh, instructed that they had successfully scaled the, the cliffs and captured the objective, the uh, the Fifth Ranger Division was diverted and was a follow-up wave. I think it was the third or fourth follow-up wave at Omaha Beach, where they, ironically enough, actually uh, suffered higher casualty rates than the second division did. But at any rate, um, that is an amazing event and an a, a unbelievable location. I'd never even heard of Conneaut, Ohio. It's in the far northeastern part of Ohio, almost on the Pennsylvania border, and it's on the obviously on the north shore of Ohio, Lake Erie. And the reason it's there is that the beach, even though there's not the tidal movement, obviously, because it's one of the Great Lakes, but the beach and then the cliffs behind it are eerily similar to Omaha, and they really are. They're not quite as high as at Omaha Beach, but outside of that, it's amazingly similar. And um, as, as part of the reenactment, it's it's an actual three-day event. Uh, they do the, um, the uh, Commonwealth, the British and Canadian uh, invasion on the beaches on the Friday afternoon, and then the American invasions are on the sun, uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, but there are demonstrations. Um, 
uh, reenactments of smaller battles like the Battle of Lafayette Bridge over just north of uh, St. Marigliese. But when they do the, the main in invasion, which is what we did, there, there are actually um, three or four working Higgins boats, uh, uh, an Amtrak, and a duck. And so we load up over on the side of the beaches and actually land right on the beaches and then charge up uh, a beach that's just almost exactly like uh, at Omaha Beach. Well, one of the main differences, of course, is that now today there's a, there's a little boardwalk along the area, so you just, in your mind's eye, you have to take that out. Sure. But they do a great job of putting in the German placements, and then there are probably, as you start coming up that hill, there are probably, um, uh, I would say, probably five or 600 German reenactors, and they're all situated there. And then the the supporting uh, equipment is just unbelievable. There's a German 88, uh, three Mark uh, four Tiger tanks uh, that the Germans have, and they come running across in a couple of smaller vehicles. And then there's a group out of out of your state, out of Florida, in Orlando called World War II Armor. Yeah, it's Rabbi Robin and his guys. Um, my group, um, well, we used to be the First Infantry Division. I actually have the um, great honor to be part of the infantry group that trains with uh, World War II armor. A lot of my guys were up there this year, and that's what I was going to ask you. Um, at the beginning of, yeah. well, at the end of last winter when they were training, because we actually do training out at Rabbi Rob's farm where we actually go out and do um, real envelopments, and he actually has a little village set up out there, and we go out there and do a full tactical with the tanks. Um, one of the One of the things that was suggested to the Florida boys is to get used to running in loose soil and sand because I guess one of the things that catch people off guard when they do Connie for the first time is how hard it is to run in that sand and how wide that beach is. Did you, did you experience the same thing? Oh yeah. The first time I did Connie was last year. And, um, I have to admit I came pretty close to uh, heat exhaustion and I had to sit out a couple of the events uh, it, it really uh, wore me out. So this year, in preparation for it, not uh, I did several things to get ready for it, some of which were coincidental, but I lost 30 pounds. Nice. I took some different medications to uh, help my knees, and then starting about uh, May, I started uh, running in my uh, combat boots. There you go. Uh, as I would walk, yeah, walk my dog, and so... I was in much better shape this time, much better prepared, and I also really, really hydrated. I, I was telling everybody around us to be sure and do that because uh, that was just so critically important. We had to hydrate, um, and, and I did. And, and so this year, I came through it much, much better. I was tired. I was pretty hot, but uh, it, was, it was just a great event. Yeah, that's one of the advantages us Texas and Florida boys have, especially uh, in World War II Army and World War II Armor and Rabbi Robin and guys. Is uh, we have heat on our side. Uh, you know, obviously down here we try to do most of our reenactment in the wintertime because standing out in the middle of August in wool is not the best thing in the world. But with that being said, uh, the best part about World War II Armor is their dedication to the craft. Now, obviously, when we're out at the farm training, we are not up the speed on facial hair standards. A lot of the guys have beards, but when we are out there training, we are in full uniform, and there have been times, if you go on YouTube and you look up the Military Collectors channel, 
go to season two, episode one. They filmed an episode out there, and I was in that episode, and you can see me. I'm the guy whose helmet always seems to fall off um, at the beginning of the little skirmish, but we shot that in August. Uh, full wool. Um, you know, we did the HBT pants, but, you know, full August, hot heat. Um, it was a long shoot day, but that's one of the advantages of being here in Florida or even in Texas when you're doing these reenactments in the heat that when it comes time to, to do the show, if you will, I mean, let's be honest, reenacting is historical and it's, it's fun, but at the end of the day, you are putting on a play. It may be a small play with 50 guys in a field, or it may be a large-scale Broadway play, as in the case of Connie in Ohio. But we all have things that we have to achieve while we're out there. Obviously, make it look real, but there are objectives that each group has to achieve to make the whole thing go off. And so when you have proper training, especially like what the guys at World War II Armor do, because of their tanks are so large and they are dangerous, and that's why they have a select group of guys they train with, because they can't just show up to an event and expect random reenactors to know all their hand signals, know all their safety procedures. They constantly put in the work, they constantly put in the training, and when it's go time and it's show time, it shows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and when we talk about heat, like you were saying, it, it's all kind of relative. Um, it, it really wasn't all that bad this year for guys from the South, from Texas and from Florida, like, like you mentioned. Uh, but when you put on that equipment and you're carrying a pack that's 20 pounds and carrying a rifle that's 12 pounds and, and all that equipment and then the, the, the jackets, which it has to be period authentic. Mm -hmm. And, of course, on the actual D-Day, it was much, much colder and, you know, wetter. So all that equipment was, and those, that clothing was necessary. But in August in Ohio, um, uh, it's not exactly the same thing. Instead of being in the mid forties, late high forties, like it was on D day or early in the morning, um, it, you know, it was in the mid eighties, but it, it really could have been a lot worse, yeah. but you still have to be prepared for it and, and train a little bit for it. And, um, but it, it, it was an awesome event and I would, highly encourage any of your listeners if if you're anywhere in the area next uh august it's usually the second or third weekend in august you ought to go check that out go to their uh, website d-day ohio uh and it's an amazing event like i said this year about 2,000 reenactors and the local uh, uh media reports that i saw showed the estimated there was somewhere between 40 and 50,000 spectators yeah that's the number i amazing. saw too 50,000 i believe now, obviously, when you have that many living historians and collectors together, um, you better bring some money because if you've been looking for anything to add to your collection, I'm sure it could have been found that weekend in Ohio. Yeah, yeah, that that's a pretty cool part about it. Uh, th this uh, living history and reenactment uh, business is what it really has become, um, has uh, a lot of suppliers and a lot of vendors and you can get a lot of different equipment. Uh, some of it is period authentic. Some of it is actual authentic. Uh, and some of it is just more uh, in the souvenir type category. But that's one of the things that I really like about this, uh, th these living histories and these reenactments, whether it's at uh, Conneaut or here in Fredericksburg, or also I do a living history at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is an amazing museum also, is that the the reactions you get from two or three different types of people number one is the little kids and the look of awe and 
the realization that we're helping a whole other generation learn and understand um, what happened and why they why we have the freedoms that we have. Just as important, the other group, in fact, actually more important, is the veterans themselves. It is just awe-inspiring, and it leaves a lump in your throat when you see them stand up and salute those who can when we get finished, and uh, some of them, they, they just thank you almost with tears in their eyes, uh, uh, just, you know, describing what their uh, experiences were and, and just the recognition that they feel after all these years, it, it really is awe-inspiring. And then the, the other group is the parents of those little kids. They're just so appreciative of the efforts. And another group that is really interesting is that teenager kind of uh, age and generation that are, you know, naturally a little bit cynical and everything, but you can see the looks in some of their eyes and, and uh, it's something that's really awakens them and impresses them. And it's interesting how many of them volunteer and they want to come and, and participate. And in several of our reenactments, we have kids that are, 15, 16, 17, and 18 uh, that are participating. And to me, that is so refreshing to see uh, teenagers who are interested in World War II history and given a keen appreciation and respect you know, that, that that era deserves. Yeah, I always enjoy watching a transformation with them because it usually happens later in the day when they've come to accept the fact that no matter how much complaining or whining or crappy looks on their faces that they have their parents aren't going to allow them to leave so when they show up in the morning they tend to be a little standoffish they don't want to be there they'd rather be at home playing video games or on their cell phone but as the day progresses and they finally surrender to the fact that they're going to be here for the duration they start to let their guard down their attitude goes away and then they really do kind of jump into it and then they finally realize hey this stuff is actually is pretty cool and and they you know they're they're no longer there trying to uh, put on a face or impress anybody who may be actually caring about who they are and they finally let themselves go and they allow themselves to learn something and it's really it's really worth it for the living historian I, you know those when we get when we get a hold of them those are the the ones that I take the most um, pride in because obviously the, the younger kids are easier to get a hold of and the you know, and the parents and the grandparents, you know, obviously they have the relation. But when you get that standoffish little teenager, whether, you know, they're 15, 14, 16, once you get through to them, that it really it really means something. Yeah, you're right. It really does. But but again, going back, the, the two groups that are the most um, uh, gratifying and satisfying to me is to see the look in the eyes of the vets and then the look in the eyes of the little kids. It, that's, that is just, that, that, that makes everything worthwhile. You know even the, if it wasn't worthwhile just for me personally. There's another group, and this group is the reason why, even if I'm not staying the night, I always bring my pup tent and set it up. And that is the grandmothers and the adult daughters, because they see that pup tent and they remember their time in the Girl Scouts. And then, oh, I remember those. We slept in those. I remember those. And I, it's always interesting to me. You could have all the pyramid tents in the world, all the mess flies set up. It's always the two-part pup tent that gets the most attention because, A, granddad, whether it was, you know, in, in the war or Vietnam or, you know, what have you, he was used to it. But the, the grandmothers and the moms, a lot of them 
especially throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when the Girl Scouts were at the all-time high, those were the same tents they were sleeping in. They were going out to the Army-Navy surplus store and buying those tents and using those in the Scouts. Oh, well, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that, but uh, that makes sense. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it never fails. Whenever I set mine up, there's always a grandmother or you know a, a mom who's in her you know 50s, early 40s. It's, oh, I remember those. We had those in the Girl Scouts, and I always get a kick out of that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, we've just covered uh, National Museum of the Pacific War. We covered the 75th anniversary at D-Day, actually out in Normandy, and, of course, Connie at Ohio. Do I remember correctly, we are now seven weeks away. By the time you guys hear this, it'll be probably six and a half to the 75th anniversary of the Peleliu landings in Fort Morgan, Alabama, put together by, um, obviously, the... Um, Alabama Marine Corps League and one Galen Wagner. Are you still planning on trying to get out there for that? I certainly am. Uh, I'm planning on serving in the uh, Army Regimental Combat Team uh, on that assault, and so I will be there that first weekend in November. Obviously, it doesn't compare to something as large as Connie, but I will say, because I was having this discussion last night with Jerry Oxley, who is one of my guys down here, as far as scale and authenticity, authenticity standards go when it comes to my experiences during living history and reenactments. Uh, the 75th anniversary of the um, Tarawa landings was my, has been my largest as far as the most tense um, and authenticity standards. Now, sadly, with that event, it was three or four weeks following a hurricane that decimated that area, and so the, the uh, crowd participation was not exactly there and so it kind of turned into the world's largest tactical event which was great for us to reenactors but uh obviously this year we've moved it a weekend and it's now no longer during the same weekend as the um thunderbirds homecoming or blue angels forgive me i can't remember which one's located up there and so we expect a, a bigger spectator turnout but the greatest thing about fort morgan and the way it's laid out with the protective dunes and all that is we are able to do the one thing a lot of people complain about, and that is we can park the cars behind the dunes so that when you're standing in the bivouac and you're standing in the camp and you do a 360, with the exception of the house that's out there, you don't see any modern-day cars. It, it's so nice to actually be out there. Uh, like I said, the uniform standards are pretty high, so everybody is, in fact, uniform, and they have on the correct era stuff. And the CBs come out and do a great job. And it's such a great event. I think registration may still be open. Um, check that out at the um, Facebook page. You can find links to the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page. But I'm looking forward to have the uh, the um, enjoyment of meeting you and hanging out with you for a weekend in, uh, in Alabama. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it also. And uh, at that time of the year, it ought to be uh, obviously a lot cooler than mm-hmm. it is right now. So, um, that, that'll be an added benefit, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's a, that's a great opportunity. Well, if the temperature is anything like it was last year, um, I slept with three wool blankets and I did bring my, um, wool lined M41 jacket and I had over top my P42s, but by no means was it uncomfortable. I've actually had more nights out at Rabbi Rob's farm, sleeping in a tent where it's gotten down to, uh, the low fifties, freezing my butt off than I actually did in Alabama. So the, Actually, the temperature was great. 
Um, the weather was awesome. It was, especially being from Florida, it was probably my first or second out-of-state living history event, and it was definitely one of the first was where I wasn't spending a majority of the day looking for water, sweating my butt off because the weather was that nice. And um, it was a great event. The property's beautiful, and I'm looking forward to seeing you, friend. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it also. His name's Al Prentice. He's from uh, Fort Morgan, Fort Morgan, Alabama. No, I will see him in Fort Morgan, Alabama. But he's from all over Texas. He's a world traveler. Clearly, the guy knows his stuff about uh, the war. I mean, we've been going on for now for about 108 minutes. And uh, he knows his stuff. He's a great guy. So looking forward to uh, seeing you again. And once again, if you're going to head out to Fredericksburg, Texas, and you're looking for a great, beautiful place to stay, look up the Bella Vista Ranch. You can give them a call at 866 866- Four two seven eight three seven four, or go to bellavistahillcountrytx.com. Thank you so much, Alan. I can't wait to see you in about six weeks. Thanks, Don. Enjoyed it, and look forward to seeing you soon. And I just got an update. Now they're saying it's going to be a Hurricane Four when it gets here. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, no. That's what I get for saying all this oh. Hurricane Two. No big deal. Now looking at Cat Four possibly, according to the latest spaghetti uh, things. But we'll we will see. Okay, we'll stay safe. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy, and once again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for your continued support of our podcast, and share us with your friends. Um, For those of you who don't know, yes, you can find us at WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can download all the episodes there. If you're an iTunes user or an Apple fan, you can download all of our podcast episodes off of Apple Podcasts. Simply search for WTSP World War II. I will give you this little hint. If you type in What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, we will come up, but you need to look for the logo with the OD green background because there is a short-lived podcast called What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, but it is about the show The Office. So when you type in the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, you'll probably find two so uh, make sure you click on the one with the OD green background and the initials of WTSP.com. You'll know it when you see it. Uh, we are also available on Spotify, Google Music Play, pretty much anywhere, Stitcher, anywhere you can get fine podcast. And, um, yeah, please share us with your friends. Like us on Facebook if you haven't. I mean, follow me on Instagram at uh, DTrain410 or Donovan410 for that matter. You can find me on Twitter at Donovan410 or simply go to D-410.com and follow all of our social media. We are working on another great episode coming up here in a week or so. Thank you guys so much. Have a great weekend. And hopefully when you're listening to this, the hurricane is nowhere near me. It's been downgraded to nothing but a nuisance, and I still have power, and I'm not sweating my ass off. So cross your fingers for me. I'll talk to you guys soon.